This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for November 30th, 2021. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, where we talk about everything by talking about video games. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and as always, I'm very glad you're here. Today, I'm talking to Carlos Bordeu, the C in Ace Team, a studio whose work I have liked for a really, really long time. You might know them from the Rock of Ages games, the Xenoclash games, or the Deadly Tower of Monsters, all of which I talked to Carlos about in this interview. You might also know Abyss Odyssey or Soul Seraph, which we don't really get to here. We mostly, though, talk about The Eternal Cylinder, their latest release, a game about survival, family, and running away from a giant, unstoppable cylinder. I have wanted to sit down and talk to Carlos for a really long time, and I'm very excited that I finally got to do it, so I won't make you wait any longer to hear it. Enjoy. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you for taking the time. I know, um, I know you're busy in general, and I know you've been like, uh, you know, doing live streams and all that kind of stuff since the release of the game. So yeah, yeah. I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, yeah, those are fun, but I'm definitely a little bit. Um, I, I feel like I've showed so much between the live streams that happened before the game and after the game. That, I don't know how much more I can go through with those without spoiling too much. <laughs> and I'm so, I mean, I do want to talk about those because I think the kind of like detail oriented, sometimes like lore related questions that people ask, I think that says something about the game and the way that people engage with it. But, but I think before we get to that, let's sort of set the table as it were for anybody who hasn't heard about it. Uh, what is the eternal cylinder? Okay. So the eternal cylinder is a, um, survival adventure game it's hard to describe exactly what it is because um it's a game that mixes a lot of things from different genres so but i would say survival adventure is probably the closest city that you could fit it into where you play as these little creatures called the trebum which are like these little heads with trunks that uh, with two legs that run around and you're ch- being basically chased by this giant cylinder. Yeah. And so like the cylinder, the, the titular eternal cylinder is first of all, terrifying. It's, it's such a great image of like a, you know, something d- dumb and unstoppable and just like utterly unyielding, but it also like, it's an interesting thing, you know, to think of it as a survival adventure game because it, like neatly the existence of the cylinder and the pace of, you know, you do some stuff in the world and then you have to run away from the cylinder because it's crushing everything that sort of solves some of the structural problems. I think of a lot of survival and adventure games, which is just like, you know, being overwhelmed by how much space you have or backtracking or any of that. In this case, you're in a relatively bounded area and then there's, there's sort of no backtracking because where you were before is destroyed. So it's like, it's very structurally interesting in addition to being tonally, uh, you know, intense, I think. Yeah, definitely the, the the cylinder changes very much the way in which you have to design the game mechanics and also game progression in the game. And, and I do know that it did come up as 
a little bit of a criticism to the to to the game, the linear linearity compared to other survival games. Um, in the beginning, in the design, we had something that was a little bit more uh, um, free, freely explorable. But what happened is that um, without the system with the towers, players really didn't have any idea where to go, what to do. It, there was a very long process of tuning the game mechanics to the point where people sort of understood where they had to go. This is definitely one of those projects where we had an idea of what we wanted to do. And as we started reaching the goals of where we thought what we thought we wanted to do, we started realizing some things worked and some things didn't. And so the design had to be constantly changed in order to see what was the design's weaknesses and and and, and strengths. That's really interesting. So I remember the title being The Eternal Cylinder pretty far back, at least when you were talking about it publicly, and I've been enjoying, you know, following its development. But you're saying like it was a much more sort of open-ended you know, survival game before. What was the idea of the Eternal Cylinder more just like a, a thing overhanging you thematically as opposed to something that is sort of what determines the pace of play, which it sort of does in the released version? Okay, so um, the very, very first name it actually had was the Endless Cylinder, and then it mm. changed to the Eternal Cylinder. And we did have the idea that there were going to be towers in the game that would prevent the cylinder from stopping, but they didn't have such a fundamental role in the pace of the game. They were going to be more this kind of accessory moments, uh, like uh, secondary moments in the game. The problem is that in the original design, we didn't. We had the player kind of free roaming, and the cylinder was moving most of the time. It wasn't stopped at, during large portions of the game. And what happened was that no matter what we did, we couldn't really strike a good balance in order for, for, for the game progression. Because if we made the cylinder move uh, slowly, it almost felt like it was there, like a something that was more um, visually striking, but didn't really have that much of an impact on gameplay. And if we actually made the cylinder move a little bit faster, and, and I'm talking like you would change, you ha you would have small changes in, in, in the speed of the cylinder and people would st start to feel like they had no time to explore at all and kind of freak out and constantly move away from it and never have a rest. So uh, the original design actually had the cylinder move moving uh, quite quite a, a bunch and and we figured out that that wasn't going to work yeah because for anybody who hasn't played the way it works in the release version like the, the game does sort of delight in surprising you and there there are things that break this flow but the basic flow of play is you've got sort of a, a safe area to explore with a clearly delineated border where once you pass over that border, you need to sort of scramble to the next tower that if you activate it can stop the cylinder and the cylinder is at that time in hot pursuit. So like occasionally there are things you might even want to explore at that moment, but if you're going to do that, you'd better pick carefully and do it quickly. <laughs> so exactly. it sort of oscillates between a relatively... Uh, relatively chill at times, but certainly, you know, more more free-paced 
you know, exploration mode versus a, a mad dash for survival. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it, it is. And uh, another interesting anecdote with regards to the development of the game is the... Since in the original design, the cylinder moved uh, like constantly, that meant the cylinder was moving relatively slowly. During a big portion of development, the cylinder wasn't really meant to move all that fast. And you have to understand that a lot of things in the game are done around that being the case. Especially optimization mm-hmm. is like a really, really significant part of the uh, of the game is, uh, well, how, how, how much interactive objects are being triggered by the cylinder depend, uh, and the movement speed has a great influence on how many simultaneous or how quickly we, we get to destroy stuff. So uh, I remember very much uh, calibrating the, the speed of the cylinder during these moments when it was running slowly. And for whatever reason, uh, there was this bug where the cylinder would start moving slowly, faster and faster and faster, till it oh, reached like the speed that you would more normally see now when it runs relatively fast. And I, re- I, I remember that bug striking me as something like, "Wow!" Like the feeling this causes, like the the sense of urgency, like to see it just like. R- like going over all the terrain at, at, at that quick speed was quite um, impressive. So it definitely became one of those decisions that uh, we knew that if we were going to do the runs in between the towers, we knew the cylinder would have to actually move faster. And uh, and luckily, I, uh, I'm very proud of what the engineering team and, and, and was able to, to achieve because I think that's one of those decisions when you're making a game that could have been the case if we didn't have the the technology well enough implemented that we would have said, uh, I want the cylinder to move, I don't know, five times its speed and the programmers could have been like, that's impossible. Mm. It, it won't mm. it, it won't be possible not 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 without rethinking the way the game is is being implemented. You get yeah, you get that sense of impending doom that I imagine was the you know part of the goal of having it constantly move, just from remembering it having moved fast and seeing it looming over you. Yeah, but but it, so as long as we're talking about it, it's not just sort of a, a bold artistic choice and like a, a structural and level design choice. It's also a really ambitious thing technically, right? To have basically entire levels be destructible because like if you're close to the cylinder as you're running away, which you sometimes are. You can see in various ways the world behind you getting, you know, smashed and crushed and destroyed and, and you know, big monsters falling over and all that kind of stuff. Was that like, was that part of the appeal of the idea from the beginning, like making a whole world that was destructible? Or was that something you, you know, in, in one way or other underestimated the, the sheer compl- complexity of? Uh, I do remember it being something that was, we knew it was a huge challenge and we knew that the the design was overly ambitious because not only were we making a game that had uh, everything destructible, since the original design had you free ro- free roaming and you had to basically move on, move on from one area to another area, but in the original design, the areas which you would reach, they were not always placed in the same place. So basically you could navigate 
for more time without actually reaching like a like one of these more custom areas where kind of these missions play out. So mm-hmm. that meant that no matter what we did, the design of the game required the generation of environment moving forward to be infinite. So we we basically came up with a system where we basically load uh, load the world as you progress, and that exists pretty that that exists right now in the game. That that's even though eventually we 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 ended up deciding deciding to create a fixed map. So, kind of a fixed map because parts of it are procedurally generated and that does mean that the runs in between certain sections are filled out with terrain that's uh, randomly generated uh, with several elements but um, technically speaking we knew we were uh, tackling something really really complicated and uh, this is one of those projects that we worked on PC for instance for a very long time and eventually you come to having to port it to the current gen consoles. I mean, not, not the Series X or the PS5, the Series Xbox, like the, the, the standard models that most people have now. And I remember just plugging in the game for the first time and running it on the base Xbox and getting three to five frames frames per second. And it was like, okay, so... <laughs> We have Here's where long... we're starting. Okay, yeah. where do we go from here? Yeah, yeah. where <laughs> and, and and it became a battle. I mean, um, every at, by the end of the game, every I'm not talking about every frame per second. I'm talking about every like like quarter of a frame per second was considered a massive achievement in terms of optimization. Like anything that we would do that would move the needle. Like the smallest amount uh, actually meant that we had done something re- really great on, in, in terms of optimization. So uh, I do think that many people uh, underestimate the the, the technical uh, technically how difficult uh, the the project is to make, and 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 it's there's also many 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 implement um, ways in which we had to solve problems to make it feasible because. This wasn't a, only a thing that we had to be like very proficient in, in in being able able to optimize systems. I mean, if we would have just simply just put all the actors in the game and said, "Okay, let's just run physics for everything," and say, "Let the game uh, sort of calculate the physics for destructibles, for objects, for all that stuff," and then try to optimize as much as we can. We would have never been able to 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 do it. I mean, some of the structures that break into pieces break in uh, thousands of pieces, and that if you would just simply try to do a physical simulation, that would never be able to to work. You could do one at a time, but the whole point is that a whole bunch of stuff is happening at once. Yeah, and many things are happening at the same time. So, so it was very technically challenging game. I have only so far had the opportunity to play the game on, you know, a nice PC with a nice graphics card. And it's and it's it's gorgeous. And those sequences are pretty incredible. I'd go so far as to say it's a showpiece, right? If you if you manage to get your hands on a cool graphics card, boot up the eternal cylinder and it'll it'll help make it worth what you paid for it. I mean, that's subjective, but you get my point. There is one thing I would like to note about is that um, this game, what we did, the, the, the main challenge, what we had to fight against was actually not the GPU, was the CPU. That was our greatest challenge, because uh, I think this goes. This is kind of a little bit of a um, 
a comment about this the state of the industry, at least for this current generation. Uh, the current gen consoles, uh, the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, on launch, I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a pretty big conversation going around about how their CPUs were, uh, the processors were actually pretty underpowered and not really significantly, uh, like compared to PCs, they were pretty uh, slow. And mm. I think that pretty much determined a lot of um, the uh, the future for game design for the past years in a sense that um, you can always get away with optimizing graphics and like making the GPU squeezing every single ounce of it because if something maybe doesn't run good enough, you can always make it make it like look look a little bit worse or make it look similar to how it look would look with a more complex shader but with a simplified shader, and the visuals start going down. But in in essence, you have pretty much the same game. The problem for us was that in terms of CPU, when you're having CPU problems, you basically can't cut something that's only visual. You're basically with the challenge of my gameplay mechanics are uh, not compatible with this hardware. And that's really, really hard when you come to the point where you have to optimize because uh, you really have to go really deep into getting the same behaviors, getting the same results, and getting the same uh, things to happen within your game to not breaking the game uh, with uh, lower uh, hardware. So, so that yeah, that was a very big challenge. That's really interesting. And the CPU, GPU thing particularly... I, I think one of the interesting things, too, is besides just the question of whether current-gen consoles have not future-proofed themselves with their CPUs, which I think is a... Yeah, that's that, that conversation got eclipsed by the conversation of just no one being able to get one. But that's... I remember that conversation. It's an important one. It's also that, like, CPU... Uh, advancements have had a lot to do with sort of multi-threaded performance and the yeah. vast majority of games rely on single threads. Yes. Right. So it's, it's just like, it, it's not really aligned with the task at hand. Is that fair to say? And, and as a result, is the eternal cylinder a bit more multi-threaded than your average game? Or were you sort of at the mercy of the engine as far uh, as that went? Okay. So I do know that we did uh, uh, the, I'm not a programmer, so I'm not the most proficient uh, in, in, in this subject. Sure, sure. I do know that we did at some point we were reaching uh, the point where with uh, we had to go multi-threaded. I hope I'm not explaining this incorrectly, but I think there were parts of the physics and other aspects of the game that we did have to go multi-thread because we were seeing that w that this race against f f to get uh, higher performance was we were reaching a point where we were seeing uh, no light on the other side of the tunnel and mm -hmm. that if we didn't actually do some pretty significant uh, changes, uh, we were not going to achieve the performance needed. I, I, this was something that stressed me out for the last part of the development for so, so long. I, I, I actually was very, very afraid of the what we were going to have as a resulting game on the base consoles. And it was particularly more scary after seeing 
all the the what happened with cyberpunk uh, actually uh, performing mm. so poorly on on uh, the base uh, systems so um for the longest period of time uh, the game run really poorly especially during the cylinder runs uh on the standard hardware and i i think it's a like was such an achievement that we actually got it to to good performance on on the systems, but yeah, multi-threaded. I do. I I think we went multi-threading for parts of the physics, but that wasn't only that. There were other optimizations done. Uh, there were things about not 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 basically calculating the physics of enemies within mm. until they were at, at a certain proximity to the player and stuff like that. And I remember that actually meant that we very near the end of the project, we created some non-progressions. <laughs> I'm sure the publisher wasn't happy about that because we added it. <laughs> we were all like really close to having to submit for final QA. And we added this optimization, which gained us a lot of performance, like a lot. And I'm talking a lot of performance, maybe one, two frames per second. Uh, probably wasn't even one. And the enemies would spawn without physics uh, at a distance to prevent the, the calculation of physics uh, from their physic assets uh, from happening until you were close to them. And for the most part, when we implemented that, um, the game continued running well. But there were some bosses that would spawn at a very, like, uh, at, a, uh, at, a, at a distance. And I remember reaching the portion where you're supposed to fight that boss and the boss not being there it was like oh jesus what did we do we just like broke the progression of the game because obviously we cannot progress in this area if the boss not there and what we figured out eventually like looking at this with typical thing you are flying around with wireframe and seeing what's going on you would actually see the boss like tiny boss at a distance like spawn and fall through the floor because it didn't have any physics and you were okay we broke this <laughs> there was oh yeah there were no physics to the point that there was no no collision no so collisions no yeah, yeah yeah the the way that particular boss was being spawned depended on this physics that had been optimized so it went was going through the floor and that meant uh you know yeah basically <laughs> No way that's wild. That. That's yeah. wild. Well, and so, okay. So, so we've been talking about all these technical challenges and thank you for going there, even though, even if you and I are slightly out of our depth, both of us in terms of threads and such, but we're, we've been talking about this as though all of this stuff and all of these simulations were worth it primarily for the destruction stuff, for the cylinder crushing everything in a credible way, which is a big part of the spectacle of the game. But that's not the only reason that this world is so detailed, right? Like, like it does lean into the survival thing where like the majority of plants you see on the ground, you can eat and and they have effects and, and all of that, right? So was that part of what drew you to this idea from the beginning as well? The idea of simulating a, a, a detailed alien ecosystem in a really deep way? I, I got the sense that that was part of what was exciting from the first. And it's certainly part of what's exciting about the game as it exists. The the original prototype of the game, the very very first prototype, did not really have the alien ecosystem part of of the design. That actually came um, when we had to like figure out what exactly was 
the game and exactly is kind of a strong word because we at that point we didn't know nothing really with with a, a lot of certainty but we didn't know we had to come come up with the design because the central elements that we did have at the very beginning the the prototype which is basically uh, was the basis for the, for the beginning of the project it had the cylinder it had the treble the, the little creature it had some of the servants of the cylinder like the 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 the, the mathematician and and which is this lumbering giant with the like these human parts and uh, machine uh, con- pieces connected to it it's such a wild being by the way that i like to even explain how it walks i would consider a spoiler because that's like it's such a crazy <laughs> moment when you get to see the light yeah. up close but anyway yeah the mathematician which is yeah. one of the sort of uh the most striking images in the game that was there even before the ecosystem stuff was. yeah 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 but we didn't really know we know that basically we had this little creature there and that a creature had to kind of explore this world but we knew it was a game about a small helpless creature that it wasn't going to be about something where you get to kill other stuff a lot mm. so that immediately put us in in in, in the sort of mentality okay so this is survival game but then we started to, to wonder like well what is this little creature going to do in terms of actions what, what what makes this fun to be this little creature because is it going to be a stealth game is it going to be i mean exploration was kind of a given obviously but that wasn't enough so the first thing, the thing that I think spawned a lot of the aspect of the ecosystem was the fact that we went for the, the decision to make the Trebum mutate uh, from the things that they ate from the environment. So that meant that we did have to create a kind of at least flora, uh, fauna around this alien world where you experiment with different mutations and... <laughs> That's one of those decisions that you initially take and say, okay, this is cool. Like, um, let's prototype a couple of mutations and you can quickly sort of do a couple of mutations, which were kind of cool. And it would give you a pretty clear indication of how you would use them. But uh, this is one of those things that you don't really know how complex they become once they start scaling and you start saying, okay, but I'm going to have to for the full game i'm gonna to have to have like 50 mutations and, and 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 that becomes you start doing a little napkin math as far as how many combinations that that means yeah yeah and it becomes uh, like uh, <laughs> a little bit of a nightmare as you one of the clever ways the game addresses it i should say is that there are sort of physically plausible uh mutual exclusivities you know what i mean i think the first one i ran into was I couldn't be bioluminescent and furry, for example, yeah. right? So like sometimes a mutation gets rid of some of your other mutations. So yeah. it isn't quite the case that it's like, you know, the, the number of possibilities to the power of the number, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it, it is limited in smart ways, but you did sort of embrace, you know, like making everything destructible, making your whole main cast of, of player characters mutate is is definitely an increased level of systemic complexity. Yeah. As well as visual and everything else. Yeah. And the other reason the, the, the whole mutation thing was is uh, decided is because of the concept of, okay, if we're doing a survival game, uh, a big uh, aspect of survival games is crafting. So crafting mm-hmm. is usually used to like sort of improve your character. You can improve it, like make yourself weapons and stuff. But 
in games where you do crafting, you usually have to make maybe a start with a tent, and you do a small cabin, then a log cabin, and you kind of build your home. But that made no sense in our design because basically uh, whatever you built was going to be crushed by a cylinder anyway, so there, there was just simply no point in actually making that kind of design. So we said, okay, so if you're going to have a creature, why not make a group of little creatures? And it's going to be a nomadic little herd of creatures. So how, how are you building the uh, upon this concept, concept of growing your um, like crafting or whatever, in, increasing the value of your herd? So the mutations came as something like uh, like that was the solution. You're basically biologically improving this group of little creatures for their adventure, and you get to keep basically all the changes that you acquire and that allows you to basically have a sense of progression in the game. Yeah, and it, it sort of very cleverly includes everything interesting about crafting in survival games. You can save materials for later, but you have limited inventory space, all of that. But to your point, yeah, it does it in a very nomadic way. It doesn't it doesn't ever allow you to sort of horde you know what i mean and and it also like it ties in thematically to the idea of this group of creatures sharing right because if you give all the cool mutations to one of them yeah. you know disaster could strike <laughs> you could lose that one or, or, or you know like they're, they're they are mortal right like yes the game is designed so that you know one or some or all but one of your trebum can die and the game will keep going uh exactly. whether whether you have the the moral integrity to not save scum in that moment is is up to you i suppose <laughs> um yeah. But it ends up being a story about, you know, like like survival in a deeper sense, right? The idea of of moving on in impossible circumstances. And like if you're if you're just making a game about running away from a big cylinder, that you know, all of these details you're talking about aren't necessary. But if you want to tell a story about like life finding a way, that's where all of these sort of systems and ideas I think come together kind of beautifully. Yes, yes. There there's definitely a lot of themes that we wanted to touch upon in the game. And I think it's very it's been very nice to see so many different interpretations. Interpretations that, I'll be quite honest, many, many of them have been beyond our original <laughs> kind of uh, plan. And because there's been people who have talked about uh, things about uh, like um, nature versus versus uh like the, the the artificial uh about diversity versus uh, singularity about uh, many different subjects um and, and it's been really cool seeing uh how people interpret the story but that 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 is definitely one of the the aspects of the game that we really wanted to be strong and i, I would keep on repeating over and over before the game uh before the beta uh, launched, because I think at that point some people knew, but basically before the game launched, we kept on saying, so survival games usually are not that well known for having a, a story that you can sort of say. They, they, they kind of, they have a story, but they tend to be rather simple in, in, in the sense that they, I mean, not all, not all of them, obviously there are, there are, there are examples that, that don't follow this principle, but um, there, there are, they usually put you in the shoes of, I don't know, I'm in a jungle and I have to survive, or I fall on an island and I have to rescue this person. And in this case, we did want the player to have this sense of progression and having to understand what's going on and to there actually being uh, characters and 
characters who talk to you and 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 you get to understand a little bit what how this happened uh where you are what's going going to happen and and and, and all those questions yeah and i uh, jonas uh am i saying his last name right Karatsis? is i sorry if i'm mispronouncing it yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not entirely. He, he. If if I pronounce it wrong, he'll get mad at me. So I'll, okay. I'll well, we can just call. Him, <laughs> well, then I'm the one he's mad at currently, yeah. and that's fine. Which is which I which is a shame because I like his work. But hey, that's fine. I accept the anger. He said um, in a blog post about the game. He he wrote the the story just just so everyone knows what we're talking about, and said that it leaves a bunch of uh, questions open. And the first question is, you know, like the na- the narration makes you wonder lots of things, beginning with why there's narration in the first place. Yes. And there are in-world answers to those kinds of questions. Yes. So just, you know, so people have some sense of what they're getting into. It's that kind of story where the very idea of telling a story in a certain way is baked into the theme, right? Like it isn't taken for granted that there's going to be narration. It knows that's weird and unusual for a survival game and it it runs with that. Is that yes. is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. And uh, the narration wasn't even part of the original design. It actually did come up it's one of those things that grew into the project as a result of problems with the project, which in it also, we, we were basically having a difficulty with two aspects of the game. Uh, one of them was pretty um, like straightforward. Mechanically, it was difficult to teach players how to do things because... The game's so different that basically people would go into it and not really. You, you get no benefit. I mean, if you if you're playing a first person shooter, you kind of ex- have expectations of the, the what how you're supposed to move, what you're supposed to do to aim, how you jump, and like the the, the controls and and there there are certain expectations that I think most game developers understand that when they're doing a game in a genre, they 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 they, they know. Most players know where they're where they're at. Uh, with Eternal Cylinder, we had no such thing, so it meant that we had to basically start teaching people like almost everything. And like as game developers, even though you try to plan for these things, uh, you start realizing that people don't really figure out things that are really really basic about the design because you've been working on the game for so long that you kind of get used to it, but you kind of forget that this is an absolutely new game and that people don't really understand your game. So we this were This is finding... a classic game development problem, by the way. You get extremely good at your game and everything about it makes sense to you, but yeah. then, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So mechanically, we knew we had to teach a lot of stuff. Originally, we wanted to go like very, very light in terms of UI and have the game be more immersive in terms of not having that many uh, UI elements on top, but it became an almost impossible task uh, given the amount of information we, we had to convey to the player. So that was one of the problems that we had to tackle on with. The second was how to tell this story uh, in a way that actually uh, would not leave people utterly confused <laughs> about what's going on, where I'm going. Like for the longest time, the game didn't seem to have that much of a drive other than it being uh, striking and beautiful. We would get so many comments from our test of, from, from the testers who would play the game that would say, this is like, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, I'm super intrigued and everything, but I don't really have like 
any reason to keep on going. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I'm I'm totally lost. And you can actually see the the narrator at some point very early in the game when you pass the I think the, the the first time the cylinder when you come out of the first elder's cave and um the cylinder you have a a big run and the, the the narrator tells you um the trebum were like really lost and they didn't know what to do but it was okay to be lost and it's it's normal for you to be lost that would that's almost me telling people like Calm down. You don't have to know what you're supposed to be doing this early in the game. And, and and I kind of told Jonas, we need a line to sort of tell people it's okay to be a little bit confused at this point in the game. Things will sort of clarify. But um, if you weren't willing to be a little bit confused, why are you playing this weird game about alien ecosystems yeah. to a certain degree? But, but to your point, you've got to walk that line where people feel like there's a reason they're playing and they have some idea of, exactly. of what to do. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Ace Teams games always ride that line in various ways. Yeah, so um, what happened is that we kind of remembered our experience with, and this was a, a, a Mundus idea. Um, he said, "Well, well, Deadly Tower of Monsters. That's another game that we did, which has a narrator in a very different way. It's basically a game that pretends to be a sci-fi movie from like." A, a like a DVD edition of, 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 of a bad movie where you have the a director. A B-movie with like, with like janky stop motion. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And you have the narrator sort of... The narrator is actually not... The narrator is a narrator. He's the director making comments about the DVD edition of this really cheesy movie. Uh, but that worked really well. The, the director became one of the best aspects about that, that game. So we went and said, so maybe we can do something similar to what we did with that game, but in a different, obviously in a different tone and, and everything. And, and I think that was one of the big surprises that came from iter iterating the design of the game. We actually implemented the narrator uh, secretly. We didn't tell the publisher and we kind of sent them a build and said, okay, look at it now. Oh, that's interesting. So this yes. was this was absolute. Not only was this not in like an initial pitch document, this this kind of got added almost sneakily <laughs> at some point during Ooh, development. We definitely sneaked it in, and it was like we teased it. Okay, the next build of the game has significant difference. I'm pretty sure you're going to notice what it is. But and and at the at the beginning, the reception was kind of mixed uh, because people had gotten so used to actually seeing the game and playing the game without the narrator that it was a little bit uh, kind of like, uh, I don't know about this. We, we sort of kept on pushing, no, 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 this, this, this is the, the right thing to do. And uh, eventually with more people actually who, who hadn't been exposed to the game for, for a long while and saw it for the first time, uh, we actually figured out that, that yeah, that this, this is something that was working, working in the game. That's interesting though. The people who objected or, or just bristled against it right maybe they maybe they didn't have an actual like they, they didn't say take this out at once but they they had that eh, reaction you're describing these were people who'd been playing the game for a while and more or less understood the rules of this world that the narration kind of describes so they felt it was redundant or like I, it took the mystery away a bit um i think I don't think redundant was the word because it would be correct because they they definitely had their concerns about people. Basically, the 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 publisher did 
send out builds of the different builds of the game to be tested and we were getting the feedback consistently that the game has these problems so i i definitely think that they appreciated very much the our our, our intention to uh, fix that problem they were pretty much in favor of the of the the utility of having the narrator it was more like this british kind of English guy, why is he here? <laughs> Instead of I don't sure. know Yoda or 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 some alien telling you uh, the story. Um, That's interesting. If it had been a guy with an American accent speaking through a filter, that would that would have been, huh? Yeah, okay. I, I see. I see. But eventually, it all worked out, and I think uh, um, I I really lo- I, I really liked working with uh, Peter. Uh, the guy who did all all the narration, I think his voice uh, worked really well for the project. the 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 thing we were going for a little bit with the narration was, if you've seen the movie The Dark Crystal, at the beginning there's a narrator which mm. very briefly sort of explains like uh, the world, the plot, and the, the, the things going on in in this really fa- fantasy world. And we were going for something kind of similar to that. That's a really interesting writing exercise too. And like performance exercise, like what if that more explicit narrator stuck with you for the whole story, but the story still never stopped being weird, right? Yeah. Cause it, it gives it a very different tone from something like the Xeno clash games yes. where you are sort of, you are a resident of this very strange alien world and nobody, nobody is going to give you, you know, an explanation as an outsider. You're, you're just there. Yeah. This, this, I, I, I hear you that it could have been a bridge too far for you to be something so non-human, you know, like something as non-human as a trebum yeah. and then also be thrown into the deep end. <laughs> like to part, part of, I, I, you know, I, I think part of my experience with the eternal cylinder has been this kind of constant push and pull of, you know, familiar and unfamiliar things, alien and human things. It's very much a game about like trying to mix all that stuff up. Yeah, it seems to me. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, there, there was a very, from from a design point, um, there's a reason behind. There's a reason why I, the like the bad guys, the 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 enemy, the I mean, the cylinder is there, but uh, the servants of the cylinder have a pretty significant role in 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 the game. And I knew that if we were to gonna make the servants of the cylinder be just other types of monsters in the game, it would it was gonna be very difficult to actually get people to understand that they were maybe not other animals or creatures mm. that were natural part of the natural world where the treble inhabited. But the fact that you are in this very alien world and then suddenly something that looks like a truck or that has a human torso or that you can see things that I'm familiar with that, 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 that looks like something from my world. It, it, it's familiar and unfamiliar at the same time because it doesn't belong there, but you, you have as a, as a, as a person, you, you see it and say, okay, I, I've seen, you know what a truck looks like, you know, like what a human body looks like. So that was basically the idea behind the design of the servants of the cylinder, and I think that worked uh, really well. If you look at the very first prototype of the 
the video of the, of the video that's called the endless cylinder when the uh, the truck enemy appears in that prototype it actually had some elephant like an elephant torso on, on behind and that's one of the things that we changed because we we knew that no matter what we we would do with with, with these creatures they had to be uh, not have like animal parts because that would become confusing it could maybe be seen as if uh, they were creatures from the world of the trebom that had been changed or something like that and we needed people to understand that no these were foreign actors in 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 this universe. I think you've described it, yeah, as what would be alien to an alien. Yeah. Right? And again, this is something where I think Ace Team tends to excel is like coming up with a consistent visual language for like for like what kind of weird reads as weird to the people in this world, right? I mean, we haven't talked at all about the Rock of Ages games, but <laughs> they share some obvious DNA with what we have talked about in the Eternal Cylinder from from destructible stuff to, yeah. to rolling, right? Like the rolling, when you're moving quickly as a Trebum, you're moving not unlike the Rock and Rock of Ages. Yes. But beyond that, those games have this really consistent visual language where stuff you can knock over has this like physical presence and then people are, you know, cutouts. <laughs> They're these yeah. kind of Terry Gilliam looking, uh, you know, like hobbly people. Um, it's interesting because like you and I actually spoke way, way, way back when Rock of Ages one came out for a magazine that no longer exists. And you talked about how you sort of considered the, the story of Rock of Ages inconsequential. I think you said you should even say that like Dr. Evil. Um, <laughs> yes, and like, I know what you meant by that. Yeah. It's, it's not reverent in any way, but I think like the, you know, the, the, the fact that it takes this irreverent view of history, but you it takes using the parts seriously, like it's playful in a serious way. I think that's key to what makes those games work. And I feel like that's a spirit you've always got, right? Like, I think I think you're slightly being humble when you say that the stories don't matter because because there's clearly narrative intent to everything you do. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Rock of Ages, um, there was definitely this... Uh... Every time we, we would go for, like, uh, working on the design of a particular uh, enemy opponent and, and, well, what this character would be doing uh, within the context of the game, uh, we, we, we definitely wanted it to be something that... Um, where people who maybe were not familiar with the character uh, would still laugh and find the animation maybe goofy and uh, like enjoy it for what it was but we always wanted to make sure that people who were maybe more familiar with the history of the character and knew something about the, the, the character would actually see like a second layer of like okay I, I see that this whoever made this joke about this particular character knows uh, knows knows well something about the character and is making fun about that part of the character. Sometimes we we went, I think, a little bit too deep and made some <laughs> jokes. I I was an art history major as an undergrad, so it was it, those games were always a feast for me. But I, <laughs> but I think of I guess pun intended. I always think of the Bacchus joke. Like that's just kind of silly and funny no matter what. But if you know if you know about the mythology, then it's fifty times funnier. You know. Yeah, but for instance, a good example, one of those cases where I think we went too far was in Rock of Ages 3, where um, the R R Rasputin is actually the joke behind 
a big part of the joke uh, in that cinematic is that we're making fun of the game World Heroes, which was this I, I don't this like a B tier Street Fighter from the arcades in the 1990s, and you could fight with Genghis Khan, uh, Rasputin, and Rasputin actually had this green robe, and he would uh, attack uh, with his... He, he was like a like a cheap version of Dalsim, I, I would say, and okay. he would attack with his... Uh, by, by making, like, magical versions of his arms, and he would, in, like project like big 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 feet and big uh, hands and, and attack you with that <laughs> I, and I think on the YouTube comments of the Rock of Ages 3 cinematics maybe one person <laughs> in all internet <laughs> said I can't believe someone made fun of something this obscure in in, in the internet because that yeah totally totally that's not even a very obscure fact about Rasputin no, person. It's that's not. that's this yeah this third order very odd pop culture reference. But that's part of what's great about those games is you don't know which direction you're going to be approaching any of these people from like the the Matrix reference in the first game or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> the idea of putting you know so called high culture so called low culture whatever in a blender is very much what those games are about and and something I appreciate. But I hear you that like when you're gonna reference something that obscure that's only very, very loosely related to the person. Yeah. It's going to be just inexplicable to some people. Yeah, and it definitely was. And uh, But it, it, it was definitely a fun fun experience, like being so irreverent with the history and uh, a, a, a cool anecdote about the... like doing these things with the characters and, and the music in Rock of Ages... Is, is something that also um, affected uh, Patricio, Patricio Meneses, who's done the, all the music, the, who's composed all the music for all our games. Uh, he's, uh, he's from a very conservative like uh, music background. He's a piano player for the uh, main uh, theater of Santiago. Uh, he does... He, he he composes and he's in charge, for instance, of ba ballet and and plays uh, classical pieces. And so he's basically close. He's close to people from uh, the music world. And uh, I should say really quickly, those classical chops really show on the Rock of Ages music. I like I love all of his soundtracks for your games, but but on those, it's like just the the versatility with which he moves from era to era is really impressive. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that uh, happens uh, happened to him when he started showing some of his work to some of his colleagues is that some of them found it kind of like, how can you do this to Mozart? Or how can you do this? <laughs> <laughs> It's like, uh, like so, so some people are pretty conservative about like not like playing around with these figures because they're too... Um, I don't know. They're on a pedestal. Yeah, which is which is so weird, particularly in the case of Mozart, you know, one of the goofiest weirdos to ever exist in all of humanity. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, and I would always, we would always come back to Patricia and say, like, no, 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 don't listen to these people. Like, like, this is the exact reaction we want. Like, 
if if you're offending yeah. someone by like if yeah. you're that if you're that conservative then your monocle should be popping you know like that's <laughs> that's the whole thing and i i don't know for me as someone who really who really loves learning about history and for that matter you know to, to bring it around to the eternal cylinder learning about ecology or or any of that stuff i think if you approach it too rev- reverently as though everything is set in stone it just makes it harder to learn and harder to engage i feel like that you have to be willing to approach it on an emotional level which means it might be scary or funny or or something other than just a dry series of facts you know what i mean yes yes yeah, I think that's that's one of the things I treasure so much about all your games is it, it it asks for investment and emotional reaction rather than rather than just like it's never too cool for school. It the game always goes really really hard in in whatever completely strange direction you've picked and I I, I can't tell you how much I love that. There's no question there. I just wanted to say that. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, I will obviously point people toward where they can get uh, all of your games, uh, Eternal Cylinder in particular. Um, is there anything else you want to plug? I'll point people at the live streams. Uh, any Anything else that, that you would want me to mention? Oh, yeah, definitely. The one thing I would want people is to... Um, I've noticed that a lot of people have been sort of shocked to see that we're actually doing a third entry in the Xenoclash series. Uh, so if you can go to uh, Clash, um, let me see, Twitter, Clash, AOC, uh, on Twitter, you can, or follow a Steam, um, you'll, a lot of people have been kind of surprised because it's been 10 years since we did the, almost a decade uh, has passed since we did both Xeno Clash games, and it's a pretty significant project for, for us. We're doing like, a, a, this is, the biggest title I think we, 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 we've, wow. been, we've been working on. I appreciate you bringing it up because I didn't know how much you were ready to talk about it. But but so so the scale of it is huge because the, the previous two Xenoclash games are not small games. No, they're not at all. I, uh, I uh, We've openly talked about the fact that Xenoclash 2 was too much for us and that the reason yeah. that it isn't as good as the first one is because we tried to do more than we were capable. We, we were coming out from the success of the first Rock of Ages and the first Xeno Clash, and we were, we kind of felt invincible. <laughs> so <laughs> we decided like sure. uh, we could do whatever we want, and uh, Xeno Clash 2 was a little bit too much. Uh, I think was... it's a fascinating and, and kind of great game, but I totally I totally hear you that it like it doesn't succeed at everything it tries to do. So this no, is an attempt no, to sort of... No, it definitely doesn't. Yeah. It has... I, I, I'm, I'm being super honest. I think it had some some things that are great and some things that are actually kind of poor that it didn't do all or it didn't do as well as it did in the first and that was predominantly the fact that we had to try to do so much and i think clash as we're, we're working on it is um we're trying to do something a bit in the on the side of xeno clash one where we were trying to limit the design and the scope of the project to something um, where we don't try to do too many things, <laughs> but it has ballooned into a project that uh, is grander in scale than anything we've ever done, particularly because of the fact that we've been pretty adamant about adding multi- multiplayer to it. So mm. um, it is a big, big, big one for us and uh, I would say it's the largest team we've had ever for, for a project 
So yeah, if if, if anyone is interested in, in in our titles, I I, I very much uh, call you to come and, and and see the development of Clash because it's it, it's it's a big one for us. The full title of the full title of this one is Clash Artifacts of Chaos. Is yes, that right? Yes, Clash Artifacts of Chaos. Yeah, I should. I will definitely that. point people toward that as well, and I cannot wait to play it. And if you're down, I'd, I'd love to have you back when that exists, uh, so that so that we can talk about all that. Oh yeah, definitely. It's pretty far off still. Um, sure, sure. I mean, Eternal just launched on on September, so. Uh, but and let's be clear, that is a, that is a huge work in its own right and extremely worth everybody's time, and uh, and that's why we talked about it for most of this time. It's, oh, yeah, it's yeah. really good. Like I said, it's a game I've been following like throughout a lot of its development, and it, it sort of like exceeded my expectations. Like I I knew it was going to be weird and compelling, but it just like it 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 got its it got under my skin in a way that uh, that I should have expected but didn't. So it's it's I I, I definitely recommend. You know, people to check it out if, if anything we've been talking about sounds intriguing. Absolutely. I mean, the Eternal Cylinder, go go check it out. Um, this is definitely, it's a very personal project for me. Uh, it, it's, it all started off with a, a personal prototype that I worked on. So yeah, it's really, really special uh, game for Grace team. And I think, I think up to now it's easily the best game that we've done. So yeah, definitely check it out. Well, thank you one more time for doing this, and uh, and yeah, very very best of luck with uh, with, uh, with with Clash and and all other future projects and the future of the Eternal Cylinder and everything. And again, thank you. I've I've admired, I've really really loved your work for a long time. So I can't tell you how nice it's been to get to talk to you about it. It's been a pleasure. Really nice to talk to you. Thank you. I know I've said thank you one more time, but thank you yet another time. Uh, and and have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. And that's the show. You can find links to the Twitter feeds for Carlos himself, for Ace Team, and for Clash Artifacts of Chaos in the show notes. You can play the Eternal Cylinder on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC via the Epic Store. You can find everything Ace Team does at aceteam.cl. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with support through anything and everything from my Trebum family, Francis Michelle Cannon and Lucio Valentino. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker using icons from The Noun Project. The current version of our theme song is by me. You can find more music I make at carpedemon.band. You can find the show everywhere podcasts are a thing, as well as at etaopod.com. You can find that plus the writing we do pretty occasionally these days at etao.blog. If you'd like to support the show and can do so without that causing you any pain, financial or otherwise, then groovy. You can do that by buying something on our Nexus page at nexus.gg etao, or by patronizing us at patreon.com etao. Thanks tremendously, as always, to our current patrons, with a special thanks to Carlos de los Santos and Darth Raptora, and an even specialer thanks to the mysterious Ian K and Lucas Cosin. You can also support us on Kofi or Gumroad, if you prefer. The year's winding down, but we are planning on at least one more really exciting interview for you fine folks, and we will of course be doing the Year in Review, our annual tradition where we talk about what we played this year, what we didn't get to play this year, and what we're looking forward to in the year to come. Hope to see you for that interview and for that Year in Review episode in two and four weeks respectively, and until such time as our paths cross again, take care everybody.